Hi, and welcome to my Thanksgiving edition of Super Anti-Aging Podcast. I hope you're growing younger, reversing that aging clock like I am. And I have so much information. I could probably do a dozen podcasts on all the new information that's coming out now on health and longevity. And uh, the good news is also I'd, I'd like to share more information and have a community of my listeners. So I'm going to, I'll keep you posted. I'm going to start a specific super anti-aging Facebook group You know, by, you know, you have to sign into it. And this way I can post all this information and all the great updates. Just before I started this podcast, I saw an interesting study on mitochondria and cancer. And it was that these cell batteries being defective were involved in tumor formation and tumor growth. And we can devote a whole podcast to how you support mitochondrial wellness. And that's important. But let me give you some new updates. One of the questions that came up was, why were so many seniors, and I'm a senior, <laughs> but not really affected by the COVID phenomenon? You know, I had it a couple of days and uh, just was a little tired and took all my supplements and I was perfectly fine. Because, now this is really fascinating to me because I grew up, I'm 76, I grew up uh, at a time when no one was really that concerned about air pollution. You know, I grew up in the Bronx, and uh, we were constantly going to the pharmacy because we had coal dust in our eyes. And so it was almost a weekly phenomenon. They'd go and you'd have something in your eye, and they'd take it out. So no one really thought about it. And, of course, we had those wonderful cars that put out lots of air pollution, including lead. You know, we used leaded gasoline. That must have been really terrific. And everyone smoked. So even if you were growing up as a kid or as an adolescent and you didn't want to smoke, you were exposed. And imagine more polluted areas uh, in in the country. So what they found is that even in non-smokers, there were age-related pollution changes in the lungs. Now, that might not include people who were uh, cannabis smokers over the years, or just because you were, if you went any place, you were on an airplane, you were in a club, you were in a restaurant, you were in a movie theater, you were exposed to the smoke. And so, after looking at people's lungs, they said, wow, you know, this is you know, we're seeing immuno, immunological changes in the lungs of non, even non-smokers. All right, so that's the bad news. What's the good news? Because I always like to do bad news, good news, you know. Don't, don't do testing and do all these tests on me and just give me a diagnosis and say, well, it's because you're getting older. Well, you know, as a side thing, and I people who know me, and as I start to do more, I'm going to start videos, You'll see, in January, January 8th, 19, I was born January 8th, 1947. So that means I'm going to be 76 in January. But, 
And I say this proudly. I work at it, and I can help my clients also get to this place. I don't have any age-related conditions. Gray hair, reading glasses, arthritis problems, prostate problems. The list goes on and on and on. I don't have them, including, because I avoid the sun, including skin wrinkles. So, can I help clients do that? Hopefully avoid these age-related conditions. So, let me get back to the topic. The years I talked about glutathione, I was probably one of the first people 25 years ago or more. You know, luckily I was, I knew um, an MD scientist who was uh, Dr. Harry Demopoulos, who was the forefront of glutathione research and uh, connected me to these other scientists. And people were saying, well, you don't absorb glutathione. Well, you do to a certain extent. And so for years I studied glutathione and we're using it. And glutathione is produced in the liver and very, very, very important for lung health. In fact, if you're exposed to any smoke, cigarette smoke, pollution, you know, stress on your lungs, the liver will sacrifice its manufactured glutathione and send it to your lungs. Hmm. So there's a compound. I've been talking about this over many, many podcasts. That was derived. If you listen to my podcast, you know about this. So go back on a compound called sulforaphane. Sulforaphane was researched at John Hopkins by Dr. Talladay over, you know, 40, 45 years and found out to be an anti-cancer compound and it has many, many health benefits. And so what happened? Um, they found that it could be made from broccoli seed. Great. Might be made from broccoli, but you have to eat pounds of it. And the idea was if you have a broccoli seed, um, a broccoli sprout, and it's three days old, and you chew it, you'll get an enzyme called murosinase, and you'll get a pre-compound pre called glucoraphanin, and you would convert some of the, when it mixed with water, you might convert some of the glucoraphanin into sulforaphane. Mm, how much? And with your metabolism, how much are you making? Okay. And so that's because it's so difficult. There's no standard blood test that's going to measure sulforaphane. So it's a big guess. I'm using it. I'll keep you updated. I'm not going to tell you yet what and where and wherefore. Um, pure stabilized sulforaphane. And I'm noticing after doing a number of blood tests of myself and some of my patients, some absolutely amazing results. In fact, one of my, one of my clients... In her 80s, who will not stop smoking. She's been smoking for decades. And I have been a lot of supplements, and she's doing fairly well. She's had some minor health issues in the past. But on the sulforaphane I'm using right now, uh, she said after a couple of days, I felt a difference in my lungs. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. I really want to start to look at pulmonary function and maybe some COPD patients. Um, and see what kind of results we get. So this would really, really be important. So what I tell clients, uh, how much glutathione you make is genetically determined. Uh, it's made in your liver, and some cells can, you know, will import it, and some cells can make it from, uh, you know, uh, cysteine, N-acetylcysteine, and glycine, which is also good. I tell people take glycine to make glutathione because it's glutamine, glycine, and cysteine, so you can make some glutathione. In fact, when you're taking sulforaphane, in order for sulforaphane to do its job, it needs to combine with glutathione. So glutathione is added to my regimen. 
for years I was using the powdered glutathione. I think it's great. I think it's nice. You can switch in your mouth and it doesn't taste that great. And you probably get some sublingual absorption. But I now prefer liposomal glutathione. I use some special pills that don't have that yuck taste that you get with uh, the liquid uh, liposomal glutathione you get on Amazon, which really tastes kind of bad. And you have to refrigerate it. So I use liposomal. I use liposomal C because in the manufacturing process of sulforaphane, you also need vitamin C. So there's a whole protocol in this whole sulforaphane um, issue. It's not just take, well, I'll take a sulforaphane pill, which it probably can. But, you know, I've developed a whole protocol over uh, using it. And, you know, the benefit to my clients is since COVID, I've been driving Dr. Paulina Liss, an integrative MD. People who listen to my podcast might know her. And she's been practicing integrative medicine uh, for over 20 years, using supplements and herbs and homeopathic and anything that works, but also medication and medical testing when necessary. So a good integrative doctor uses everything. And that's really, real important. So we've been able, I've, I've had the privilege of actually sort of <laughs> doing a mentorship because in driving her since COVID, I get to ask her these, all these questions and I share the studies that I come across because I love reading all these studies that most doctors don't have time to read. And we brainstorm what actually works based on patient experience and what doesn't work. You know, one of, one of my pet peeves is this whole, you get a compound, and, and I'll stay tuned. I'll update you on some also some new news. The gold standard is what they call double-blind placebo-controlled study. Double-blind study. Well, notice in my, in my, in my thinking process, I said double-blind blind study, meaning they get one group gets the product or the drug or whatever, and the other group doesn't, and the group doesn't know which one. And what did I just say? I said, <laughs> double-blind placebo-controlled. Well, it's the exact opposite. We all know placebos can be very, very powerful. You take something, and you have an idea it's going to do something, and in some people it does. Well, how do you rule that out? How do you rule out a placebo response? And you don't know. Okay. And often, you know, to do a, a double-blind study, it's very expensive. And, you know, to have lots and lots of people in it is a problem. And it needs to be repeated. And who's going to support this? Well, if you have supplements, you know... Here's here's another good one. Oh, this is on my like <laughs> list. Okay, a new study came out that statins that statins lower cholesterol. Oh, okay. So what? All right. But here's the other side to it. <laughs> they found after testing six. They didn't say which ones. Six over-the-counter nutritional supplements. It didn't lower the cholesterol particularly as the statins did. Oh, kind of interesting. Who studied, who studied, who sponsored the study? It was AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca. Who makes the statins? Isn't that interesting? Oh, no bias involved in the study. Right. 
Okay, so, you know, we can devote a whole major, major podcast to this whole gold standard of, you know, dump. I see, I can't even, it sticks in my head. Placebo-controlled study. Okay, so, what am I top right now? Uh, longevity, um, or as I say, increasing health span supplements. Well, it seems that one of the major factors in aging is your microbiome ages. From you know, no matter what it was, from forty on, it starts to get old. <laughs> yeah, sorry to tell you that. So, supporting a diet with lots of good fibers and fermented products, and maybe which I'm going to start to you know explore uh, doing uh, a micro. Uh, you know, testing for your microbiome and trying to see what works. And I'm going to be doing in the next year, exploring lots and lots of these new tests, you know, the gene test and the, and the biological age test and uh, all sorts of wonderful tests are now available that weren't available before. Unfortunately, most of them are not covered by insurance. Some are. Some are covered you know, there's some digestive function tests that uh, look at this that seem to be covered by some insurance policies. Even Medicare seems to cover some of them. And, you know, that, that's kind of helpful. But why, why do I like these testings? I like the testing because it gives you some marker. It gives you some way of making this a little more personalized. Maybe you need 10 times of a supplement. Maybe you have a genetic issue for folic acid, you don't make methylfolate, or you don't make pyridoxin 6-phosphate, or even thiamine, you can have a problem with the conversion, so you're taking the vitamins, and you're not getting the effect. Also, this testing is kind of important. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. You know, uh, I recently did a blood test myself, you know, using some of these anti-aging compounds, and it, I definitely saw some major differences. But what really surprised me was my vitamin D was 26, 20, I don't know, it was in the, I don't forget, it was 21, 26, whatever. It was low. And I've been taking some vitamin D. I've been taking like 5,000, sometimes occasionally 10,000. But of course, it's not, you know, beach time. I'm in the East Coast. And so obviously, for some reason, I don't know why, uh, I wasn't getting my vitamin D up. You know, some research says you need K and K2 to help, you know, with the, um, absorption of vitamin D, maybe there's a genetic issue, I don't know, but raising vitamin D and keeping vitamin D levels probably anywhere between uh, 60 and 80 is, is actually a really good idea. So the testing can be really important. The problem, again, with most blood tests that you go for, they're disease blood tests. And, you know, they, they do the standard blood test, you know, um, your CBC, your basic cholesterol, you know, liver, kidney, a basic immune profile, they're really kind of like amateurish. You know, they're really not all that sophisticated. First of all, you know, what are the reference ranges? How are the reference ranges determined? They need a good practitioner to look at you and look at your results. And what is optimal? Well, here's some really good news that I'm going to be exploring in the next year. Many of you know about artificial intelligence and what an effect 
it's having in, in every single field. And the idea that it can process so much information quickly that, you know, a doc would take forever and it just can't do it. And so what some companies are doing is um, you gather all the information, your blood tests and all these other tests and functions, and it's feed, fed into an I artificial intelligence program to try and personalize, personalize it for you. And that's really the key. You know, getting to what personalized health medicine, okay, and say disease medicine, health medicine is so important. Uh, and that, then that's where all these tools now, you know, where you can do a remote uh, blood sugar, you know, you get a patch in your arm, even if you're not a diabetic, and you can see where your blood sugar and what's affecting you. And now we have ones that are going to come out that where they measure the blood test and heart rate variability and oxygen consumption and more and more data, which is great. But then what do you do with this? Okay. It has to be personalized for you. And unfortunately, you know, for most physicians, they don't have the time unless you're in some concierge program or, you know, out-of-pocket program. Uh, insurance companies are not going to pay for, you know, long consults uh, where a physician is going to analyze all this personalized data for you. It is a problem. Okay, so the responsibility then falls on the individual and maybe, you know, with some health coaches or people who specialize in being able to interpret this information and personalize it. Because what is the goal? The goal is optimization Living long, living long and not having a health span is not a particularly good idea. So we want to increase your health span. We want to increase your energy, your mental capacity, your brain function. You know, as a side note, one of the things I've noticed and share with my listeners that I've noticed in, in the anti-aging compounds that I'm now using, I've noticed some major, major uh, brain changes. I mean, really, uh, in concentration, in in memory recall, which wasn't particularly bad. Okay, but you know, it was like, where are the keys? You know, where, where's my keys? Where's my glasses? You know, that that kind of stuff, and maybe a little ADD added in there. But now, I mean, it's just extraordinary because you can. The brain is amazing and you know neurogenesis growing new connections in the brain and i'll leave you with this last uh before you know i i come to a close of this podcast we don't know everything about the body and medicine and science should be open to say we don't know but we're going to hopefully learn because patients want certainty and we don't really have all that certainty. We might have experience of what seems to work, but they discovered two new organs in the body that we didn't know. We didn't know about the microbiome until we were able to have advanced testing that tested the DNA of the microbiome. And so, and science is about science, okay? Science should be about, we don't know, and maybe we'll find out. Okay, and then we'll try and test more and try and find out and test more and try and find out because 
You remember in the past, you know, as I said previous in this podcast, this double blind, in these double blind studies, how is old type medicine, you know, that seems to have some interesting results, you know, and, and we're using many of them in, in integrated medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, which came up with turmeric and ghee and uh, ashwagandha, and now we're seeing really these things work, and 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 uh, Chinese medicine, you know, uh, you know, ginseng and green tea. How did they come about with this? They didn't have double-blind studies, okay? They had observation. And they saw what worked and what didn't work. And they recorded it and passed it on to other practitioners and, and keep testing and testing it. And we call that functional medicine. And that's what we need, in my opinion, more and more doctors who are doing functional medicine, sharing, 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 sharing their experience with many patients of what works and what doesn't work. As opposed to, you know, uh, getting this information through the pharmaceutical. Always, the, I'm not against pharmaceuticals. I think they're great, but it's one channel, and unfortunately, many times it's economically bias driven, and there's some problems with it. Okay, because remember, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out. A lot of times, something is put out, tested, supposedly tested. That's okay. And then eventually they find out bad things happen to people and they just take it off the market. Oh, great. So you experimented on me. You experimented on the population. Now, sometimes it's absolutely necessary. I'm not saying that they don't try and do a good job. But you, know, you can't really test something on a huge population. It's experimental. But when you start to get enough feedback from patients through their practitioners, they say, oh, no, I took this and it doesn't particularly work. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example and then I'll close. You have inflammation. Okay, you have a headache, a joint, you know, for whatever reason. So you're going to take um, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, which might be, you know, Advil, you know, ibuprofen, Advil. Well, a new study showed that it actually in the long term might increase inflammation. Increase inflammation. Hmm. Then another study came out in aspirin. Well, aspirin was good for the heart attack prevention. It might be a good thing. Now they say, no, 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 no. So I understand why consumers, health consumers, get so, so confused. I personally understand. So let me come to the end of my podcast. I have a couple of requests. Please share this podcast if you like it so I can accumulate more listeners and it's going to motivate me to do my private Facebook group, which I'll tell you about. And uh, I'm going to actually, in my, in my, my goal in the new year is start to do some YouTube videos. And uh, my goal is I really want to make a difference sharing this kind of information. And if I have more listeners and maybe I can get advertisers, I can expand this to where I'm interviewing all the scientists that I read all these studies about. So, coming to the end, enjoy your Thanksgiving dinner or however, if it's vegetarian or if it's not vegetarian, but it's all about being with people. You know, I, I, I live in New York City and it was so good to be out. Went to the Thanksgiving Day Parade and there were lots of tourists and lots of people out there 
And you didn't have to be afraid to come next to someone. That was the most horrible thing in New York. You know, people didn't want to go near each other. Stay away from me. Stay feet apart. Well, people are not doing that now. And hopefully we have this somewhat under control. And it was really nice to be with uh, other people and enjoying New York. So it's a little bit long a podcast. But, you know, it's uh, I'm feeling really motivated to share this information. So enjoy. And I'm looking forward to sharing more information with you.